Hello and welcome to Anything That Moves, a Manif mobility podcast about the future of people and goods getting around faster, cheaper, safer, and cleaner. I'm your host, Mayor Dardashti. Before we get started, the team at Manif wants to hear from you. If you had feedback or if you are the founder of a company in the mobility space, please reach out to us via the form on our website, www.maniv.com. That's M-A-N-I-V.com and click contact us. Having already heard it, I'm very excited by the conversation we're about to share with Professor John Paul McDuffie of Wharton. Before we start, though, I want to take a moment to thank my colleague and friend, Lauren Luz, who's moving on to greener pastures. As Anything That Moves founding producer, Lauren is quietly responsible for so much of the podcast's honestly surprising success. Lauren, you should know the podcast is in good hands, but we're really grateful for the foundation you've laid. Thank you. And now back to our regularly scheduled programming. I'm, I'm here today with uh, Professor John Paul McDuffie of Wharton. There are many other titles attached to that, and I'm happy to let you cover them uh, also in presenting yourself, but it's really an honor to have you with us today. I, I don't think there are a lot of figures in academia that are as tightly tied into industry and cognizant of what's going on and also tied into the financial implications as you are. And it's really exciting to have you on the podcast. You know, thanks for joining. Thanks, Mario. I'm pleased to be here. I'm going to let you give it the full spiel now. I, I know that the introduction I gave was inadequate, so I, I would welcome that you fill in the gaps. This is a, a mobility audience, but they might not uh, be specifically familiar with you yet. Sure. I'm a professor at the Wharton School, which is the business school at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm in the management department, which is a big department that includes people in strategy, entrepreneurship, global, human and social capital organizations. I'm the director of something called the Program on Vehicle and Mobility Innovation, which is at the Mac Institute for Innovation Management. So that perhaps already gives some orientation about the focus of mobility in my research and in my uh, university activities. At the moment, I'm the president of something called the Industry Studies Association, which is basically a professional association of mostly academics, some policymakers who believe that you got to dig deep into the details of industries to really have good research questions, collect good data, know the right kind of implications of what you learn. And the last thing we'll say is I got started looking at mobility and specifically the global auto industry as a doctoral student at MIT. I was there at the time of something called the International Motor Vehicle Program, which ran first in the late 80s and then on from there. They're best known for a book called Machine That Changed the World, which became a big bestseller about the rise of the Toyota production system or lean production as a challenge to mass production. For me, that meant starting with research in manufacturing, benchmarking assembly plants all over the world, eventually studying supply chains and the supplier role in quality improvement and innovation, eventually studying product development, product architecture changes, and all the way up to today's focus on vehicle mobility innovations, which means not just cars and not just products also services, ecosystems, the whole, the whole nine yards. So the impetus for this interview or for this conversation among others was, and I'm very excited to have this. I actually printed this out. It's the first time I've printed anything out in like probably five or six years. Um, but you recently released yeah, cool a uh, color. Cool, cool, full color. I, I sprung on the full color. You should know that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, uh, you recently published with uh, engine number one, a white paper uh, called mobility becomes electric. I, I will include a link in the show notes, but if I can try and summarize the thesis, and I, I want you to jump in and tell me where I got this wrong or I wasn't nuanced enough. The, okay. the basic premise is that 
the transition to battery electric vehicles has, be, has become inevitable. It's just a matter of time. And that in that transition, although the, the markets are, are valuing you know, Tesla in, in phenomenal amounts that signal that this could be a winner takes all market, that that's very unlikely. And that traditional OEMs, the, the combustion OEMs, the familiar brands that everyone knows are likely to have a very significant part and might even be underpriced as a result in this battery electric transition. Is that, is that a fair overall summary? That is a fair overall summary. Yes. I, I think maybe the only thing I would add is that the, some of the inevitability is not a story of technology triumph necessarily. It's a story of, you know, the world in a variety of ways being concerned about climate change and governments really pushing for a set of emissions reductions that will be impossible to reach in transportation without electrification. I mean, there's other paths, including fuel cells and hydrogen and the like, but there's no other path that has as much potential to bend the emissions curve as electrification. And transportation is a sector where electrification has not made much progress yet, as opposed to others, including you know electricity generation itself coming from more renewable sources. So I think that's the the thing I would add, some of the push for this comes from policy and climate change concern, but I think the investor backing and the corporate strategic backing of it is a function of that, plus the technology improvements and the ways in which it's a more attractive proposition. It's not just telling people you have to go out and buy an environmentally responsible vehicle. These vehicles have a lot of other things to appeal to consumers. So you, you acknowledge in the piece that there have been fits and starts to this process, that there have been false starts, but you highlighted also two companies that have done, you know, you think are, are doing really, really interesting work in electrification, GM and VW. And, you know, I have to acknowledge that it's been kind of a rough year for both their electrification programs. Um, you know, GM's had a, a recalled 100% of its bolts and yep. uh, the VW ID3 is, it's just been a bad year for the ID3. Has any of that changed fundamentally the way you're thinking, or are these just you know micro examples of, of hiccups along the way in, in what you still see as an inevitable process? Well, in the white paper that you mentioned, a lot of the assessment is looking out further from you know where we are now and sees GM and Volkswagen both making big commitments now to have the scale in batteries. And the commitment to, we think, a a promising battery architecture, battery platform, and putting the kind of corporate resources behind that. And we believe that having scale and kind of technical advantages in batteries is going to be one of the differentiators. It's also true that GM and Volkswagen both have uh, the most exposure and the most history in China, which is the world's largest EV market. And all of the foreign automakers in China are required to make some of their EVs to sell in China with Chinese components. So anyway, they have more exposure to that very important part of the global competition for battery electric vehicles, which we also think is important. Less global automakers or smaller scale who've been a little more on the fence about what kind of battery um, scale capacity commitments to make, we think are going to fall a bit behind, unless they change that. 
So you, you mentioned China and, and I, I want to make it clear. I'm, I'm just going to prod at a lot of things that I thought were, you know, interesting or, or assumptions that I, I don't necessarily know how they hold up under stress. Sure. But this is an amazing white paper for anyone who hasn't read it. You mentioned China. And, and again, to go back to the thesis here, step one is it's, it, electric vehicles are coming. Step two is Tesla alone can't capture this market. And you made that point really compellingly that there is not a phys- it's a physical manufacturing and materials you know, issue that Tesla cannot produce 80% of battery electric vehicles in 20 years. But then the third step is, therefore, the brands that you know and recognize are going to fill in the gap. And, and you know, just as an observer in this field and a participant in, in, in mobility, the Chinese OEMs are, are actually very advanced on EVs. I mean, how concerned are you that the disruption fundamentally comes from the East and not necessarily from Tesla, that the other 80% of this market becomes dominated by, by OEMs that most Americans or even Europeans don't know. So let me break that into two pieces. So one is, yes, the main message is that Tesla is not going to be enough, no matter how successful and how bullish you are on Tesla. A corollary is that new other new EV startups are also not going to be able to scale enough to contribute sufficiently. And that's not taking anything away from Neo or from Rivian or from Lucid or any of these firms. I mean, I think if you want to dig into them more, they all won't have an easy time duplicating all of Tesla's successes. I mean, there are some unique things about Tesla's path. But you're also talking about a lot of other Chinese automakers and really a Chinese government strategy to make China world beaters in EVs, where they haven't really been a global powerhouse in the export of internal combustion engines. Largest auto market in the world, a number of very strong automakers, foreign automakers are there. But up until now, there have been very few Chinese export models. And a lot of people expected that given you know Chinese manufacturing expertise, low labor costs, and big backing from the government, that we'd have inexpensive Chinese branded vehicles taking over markets all over the world. And and that has not happened. And that's somewhat relevant, I think, to what I'm going to say about Chinese EV makers. So you've got, again, a big strategy on the part of the government, probably lots of subsidies. There's subsidies on on the demand side for consumers. There's subsidies of the firms in a variety of ways. There's mandates that you use Chinese produced batteries, for example, and CATL is the biggest battery maker in the world, partly as a result of that. So I guess the question is whether you see these Chinese OEMs as able to move faster than all these other global automakers, as you say, the brand names that that we know. And I take them seriously, but I'm not sure they escape some of the same challenges of making the transition that face any automaker in the world. In other words, if, you, if you're not born electric like Tesla, if you're not born thinking about the software as a core part of the product from the very start, you've got to learn all that stuff. Um, if you come into this as a tech newcomer, that now wants to build EVs and you have to learn every single thing about, you know, being a global auto manufacturer and Foxconn, you know, I'm pointing to you. So fantastic electronics manufacturer doesn't mean that overnight you become a fantastic global automaker. So that's, that's part of, of the question. And, and frankly, the, the ways in which it was hard for 
the Chinese OEMs to successfully break out as exporters in the traditional internal combustion world is part of what gives me some skepticism. The, the government's bet is we can leapfrog here because the West has been slow and they're not getting into this. Well, now the West is getting into this. And so now it's seeing who can pick up those capabilities faster. So you mentioned software just now, and I, I can't help myself. It, it makes into the report, your coverage of it in the report is spot on, but it might be a little understated that there's a caveat at the end that one thing we should note is that, you know, electrification comes with increased importance of software um, and software might be a challenge for OEMs of all stripes. From my limited experience, I look at, you know, over the air updates uh, where Tesla was doing them in 09, you know, 2010 already. And there are good OEMs today that are really struggling with this. T today, you look at infotainment, where the OEMs had a really, really long head start, and Google and Apple are, are, are really cleaning house. That small caveat might actually be a really big problem when Toyota's defining feature is no longer the way they tune their engine, but the way they manage the battery software. How much confidence do you have in the ability of traditional OEMs to transition you know, to being software giants? Uh, so I think the closer the software tasks are to what we would call the, the digital world, the harder it is. The more the software tasks are about software controls of hardware, the more these companies have already been working on that for a long time and actually have probably more expertise than you know. And, you know, it started off simply with training some hardware engineers to write some code and, you know, they understood the hardware well enough to do it, but they weren't good at writing the code. So early code was kludgy and inefficient and the like, but, you know, this process that you, you only get up to a hundred thousand or 10 million, depending on the vehicle lines of code in a vehicle from many years of writing software to control how the vehicle operates. There's hardly a system in the vehicle now that doesn't have some software somewhere in the process of, of how things are controlled. So there's quite a lot of uh, experience there. It's the same argument I make in the white paper about electrification. If you look at patents and other kind of activity, these traditional OEMs have been doing work in electrification for years and years and years. They just haven't been applying it. And, you know, I believe that knowledge is part of what makes it capable for them to learn faster in the future. They're not starting from scratch. <clears throat> it's part of what, where I do criticize VW a bit because they actually were actively not pursuing electrification very much until Dieselgate. And now they're like, you know, all in partly to convince the world to forget Dieselgate and now accept them as, a, as an EV leader. But Toyota, Toyota with, with the Prius, you know, I mean, there's some pretty sophisticated software involved in switching between the battery and the internal combustion engine in a Prius. It's not exactly the same software task as a battery management system for all electric, but I have to believe a lot of those software skills transfer. That said, Toyota's trying to set up a whole separate subsidiary through this Woven Planet initiative of theirs to do an open source kind of uh, software for a lot of the future operations of, of vehicles. Um, you've just got so many kinds of efforts going on there. I don't know that we have a clear winner. You know, we have to look at Waymo too, because we've, we've got autonomy factored in and all the Waymo products are going to be EVs, right? Battery electric vehicles. So 
I take the Android Auto and Apple CarPlay success so far quite seriously to see tech firms as having a really big role in the parts of the vehicle that are closest to the digital tasks we know now. And those are huge, but it's not the whole story about software in the vehicle. So how, how do you think about the challenge of just where we are in the, you mentioned in, in the white paper, one of the, I think the really compelling points you make um, is that EV design is converging uh, towards certain basic parameters and basic design language. You know, even the, the most basic thing like, you know, cars should have lithium ion batteries was probably controversial when, when, when Tesla started building uh, yeah. EVs. And now it's just an understand, you know, understood by every player, but you know, how, as a consumer, or even as a fleet owner, there's a lot of risk in investing in a technology that still has risks of obsolescence. You know, like I, I spoke a couple of weeks ago with someone at a, a captive finance organization, the, the leasing bank side of a, or the financing side of a major OEM. And he yep. said, I, I know how I lose my job if I lose it, which is that, you know, I've been forced to buy all these EVs. And if tomorrow a new battery chemistry comes out, the, the value of those EVs drops dramatically. How, do you do you think this is a still a fundamental issue, or do you think it's just secondary to, to stimulating demand or to facilitating demand? Yeah. So I've I've multiple thoughts on this, and and of course, since it fundamentally depends on the pace of technical advance in batteries, it's all under a big un, unknown. But in terms of obsolescence from battery life not not being long enough, seems like we're overcoming the the fear that they're just going to die early that was there in the early days. So that's, and I know that's not what you mean primarily by obsolescence. Recognize that a lot of the concern about possible shortages of different kinds of materials, one of the big strategies for dealing with that is battery recycling. So if there's an active market for taking older batteries and extracting valuable and scarce materials and putting them into new batteries, then I see this as less of a concern because these are modular enough. You can take them out and presumably there'll be new designs that are at least interface wise designed to go in. And then a lot of the new management of a new battery is in the BMS, right? It's in the, it's in the, it's in so the you software. Think, so you think battery recycling is going to just create a, a price floor for whatever batteries out there? I, I, I think it might. The other thing is, while everybody's talking about solid state and solid state could be be huge, I think it still is a bunch of years off. One problem, even if it becomes more technically feasible, is it's going to be super expensive. And so much of what we've seen potentially fueling faster diffusion is price dropping and price dropping because battery price is dropping. So solid state may come in at the high end and only be a high end option for a while and not have a huge impact on the rest. But there's all this experimentation with different battery chemistries going on. Some of it's to lower cobalt. Some of it's an idea that, look, you might use different battery chemistries for different products in your portfolio. So the smaller products that you don't, you're not aiming for as, as high acceleration, they're much lighter. You might use a different battery chemistry than you would for your high-end vehicles. So I also see batteries as becoming less and less of a commodity. Cells... A little more ambiguous, but I've, I've been doing some work with some colleagues in France just trying to take stock of who's doing what in batteries, like what is being done by powerful suppliers, what's being done by automakers themselves. And pretty much everybody buys cells from a cell maker, 
But then what we found is something like 60, over 60% of the automakers are taking over from there, putting cells into modules, putting modules into packs, doing the battery management system themselves. The rest are doing it in a, in a close alliance with like one big battery supplier. So there's just not this giant commodity-like market for, for batteries. And all the trends in batteries are to develop a system, a platform that really is unique to you and your product portfolio. So you've got GM with Ultium, and part of what they're saying is, look, we can have the battery packs take almost any shape. They can be horizontal. They can be vertical. They can be big. They can be small. We can have multiple if we need to for a Hummer and and this is the way we're going to support a portfolio of all these different products that we want um, in a sensible way. So batteries going towards more and more variety, both in chemistry and in other aspects of their platforms, I think is a piece of what it's just going to, I don't think we're going to have such clear cut cliff of obsolescence. We're just going to have continual change and the whole industry is going to be dealing with it. And so maybe those EVs get put back into the resale market sooner and they're going into the used EV market for, for retail consumers. And that's always been part of how the rental industry has dealt with this issue of, of older technology in rental cars. I mean, the other side of this is that it's also obsolescence is also a function of demand. That if, if no one can find a laptop because of the, the pandemic and the chip shortage, and all of a sudden a two-year-old laptop doesn't look so bad. Um, yeah. And with, with so many European cities, especially planning to ban diesel in the middle of, you know, in their city centers, it could very well be that in five, 10 years, people will buy any EV just to get into the city center for free. I, I want to I just, you know, change gears a little bit because you, you highlighted also an infrastructure problem that I think is one of the most interesting chicken egg issues around EVs. Yeah. Um, and, and it's specifically around traditional OEMs because, you know, Tesla kind of solved the chicken egg problem by making their own supercharger network. Yeah. Um, do you, do you, and, and, and I'll acknowledge that this white paper is all of, you know, the, the, the publication date is October, 2021. So as of the recording, this is, you know, brand new, but I'm sure a lot of this was written and researched, you know, in the last six months, last year, is there any movement there? Do you see, you know, there's a staring match right now between the OEMs, uh, the government's. And I don't know, whatever other private players think they have a stake in, in charging. Um, do, do you see anyone blinking? Is there is there anyone who's willing to stand up and say, I, I'm going to take ownership of the infrastructure challenge behind charging EVs? Well, it's, it's clear in the U.S. that there's a lot of waiting to see how much support comes out of the bills the Biden administration is trying to get through Congress, right? And the the final details on how much is going to be in there for charging infrastructure have, have gone up and down. And I, I don't have privy to the latest ones, but they, they seem to drop in the infrastructure bill that was passed in the Senate earlier, but then more was put into the, the second bill. So anyway, we have to wait and, and see. I think the what people are waiting for government support on are all the charging investments that don't look like they're going to be profitable right now, right? So you're putting it into more urban settings where it's more complicated and expensive to even put it in and the ownership isn't there yet. So the demand is a big question mark. I think also EV support along the interstates is something that is, I think, properly seen as a federal government 
kind of role. And I think eventually the federal government will come around to that. But it's, it's sort of the equivalent of, the, of building the interstates in the first place is to now deal with what I still think is one of the big, biggest sources of range anxiety for people, which is when I take the long trip at Thanksgiving, you know, to see, see the grandparents, that's when it's going to screw me up because I'm not going to be able to find charging or I'm going to have to wait in line for charging or, or, or whatever. Although, let's call it like it is. This is mostly in consumers' heads. No one takes those trips. Yeah, <laughs> no right. ends up taking that road trip that they're always dreaming of. <laughs> no, that's right. Or, or they fly, right? Or Yeah. So, and, and I think the other thing, I mean, this is about psychology, so it's always hard to say, but the, the rationality behind range anxiety for many consumers is just becoming um, lower and lower, I guess I would say. And that's partly because of battery range, battery capacity. It's partly because you can now buy bigger vehicles that are BEVs that also, because of bigger batteries, have bigger range. But I think another huge piece of it is just how many people can do this at home in a completely sensible way, which means they will almost never really face the risk of running out. So, you know, you put in the equivalent of uh, what you need for your clothes dryer, you put in a 220 line at home, and in four or five hours, you can really be recharged. And if you're just driving what the typical American commute is of less than 40 miles per day, then you top it off every night and you tell it to charge at night when the, when the electricity rates are lower. I mean, for people in the suburbs, people in rural areas, some people in cities that are more spread out and people have have garages or places they could put an outlet in. I mean, that's the way to go. And then how many places are around town? So while you're doing your grocery shopping, you can top it off again. I mean, that's where we're waiting to see how hard the private investors come in with infrastructure for that. And they're probably going to wait until they see the demand. We, we, we can say all we want about the, the momentum here. But until the sales of the vehicles come in strong, I don't think we'll see as much private investment in the infrastructure. But the government support for subsidies for purchases should help. The government doing more with infrastructure. You know, it all, there is a sense of you get enough of these things spinning in the same kind of cycle at the same time, and then you're starting to get multiplicative effects that we haven't seen. But it could also, there could be dirt in the gears and it could all grind to uh, not a halt, but slow it down a lot. So news broke after the white paper came out, I mean, pretty soon after. Which if, I, if I were the author of the white paper, I would have been really frustrated that it broke two weeks after I published. Yeah. But of, of Hertz buying 100,000 Teslas. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I think like the, the, the internet reaction was, oh my gosh, Tesla's, that's proof Tesla's God. Um, yeah. I, I think that it's actually probably pretty supportive of your thesis, but I want to hear your reaction to it. I mean, how... How does that amplify or change or, or make you rethink any of the, the points that you make in your paper about um, both EV adoption more broadly and specifically about the relationship between Tesla and the broader automotive industry? Yeah. So to, to frame it just a tiny bit differently, but to come back to it, I try in the white papers to address this issue of whether battery electric vehicles is going to be a winner take all thing, you know, like we've seen in so many other areas. And I think so many investors have gotten used to thinking that way because we've seen digital disruptions in industry after industry that have turned out to have a winner take all kind of dynamic. And maybe it's, you know, some unique aspects of this kind of mobility. I mean, I've written a lot about how 
automobiles are different from most other products because they're you know large heavy fast moving objects that operate in public space and like kill people and yeah. there just aren't many products like that so that's why they're regulated that's why they're as compl- complicated as there are that's why automakers have regulatory responsibility legal liability etc so anyway I see more of these things in a rising tide lifts all boats kind of way, frankly, at the moment. So to me, the Tesla Hertz thing is like, oh, more people are going to see EVs. Some of them will buy a Tesla. A lot of them will buy something else. And one of the things that's really been lacking is an easy way for people to get a trial in an EV as just part of their everyday life, as opposed to going out and really trying hard to do it. And this could absolutely be the way that happens. I'm, I'm sort of picking up an interesting angle here, which is that companies might be able to get some credit towards some of how their corporate emissions are counted if their employees rent an electric vehicle when they're on a business trip. So as just a little extra incentive to pay the extra cost, it's likely to, uh, you know, what the rental fee is likely to be. I just think the more people who get exposure, the more it helps all EV sales. And Maybe that's because I don't really think Teslas will ever come down low enough in price to be the, the the lower price point solution for most people. And it's also, I just think that what consumers want and look for is, is we know they always respond to differentiation. They always respond to, to variety. So I, I just don't see Tesla, again, many, many reasons, able to, su- to supply all EV demand. And if there's reasonably attractive products from brands that you already have experience with, people are going to buy them. I mean, it's, it's funny. If you read between the lines of the, of the press release, you get the feeling that, that Hertz is basically saying, we're buying 100,000 Teslas because we don't see another EV product in the market right now. But you better believe the second there's another product in the market, we're, we're buying that too. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, they, if, they, the Ford, if the Ford F-150 Lightning takes off, they're going to have a bunch of those in there. Uh, in I, got, I got bad news for Hertz. Ford yeah. is not giving the F-150 Lightning to a rental company. As much <laughs> as I appreciate Hertz, they're, they're last in line for the F-150 Lightning. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's true. If, if only because of their acting CEO, right? So, uh... <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you. Really, thank you so much for your time. Uh, this is a great conversation. I, I, I really appreciate your insights. And and yeah, for anyone who hasn't read it, I, I really recommend it. We'll send a link to to the article itself. Uh, sorry, not article, to the white paper itself. And And, you know, looking forward to doing this next time in person. Excellent. Thanks. And thanks for great questions. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Bye. Thank you to producer Naomi Lazarov for making this episode happen. If you liked her work and are willing to put up with mine, please rate and subscribe to Anything That Moves wherever you find your podcasts. Once again, for feedback or to reach out for investment, please go to Maniv.com and click contact us. You can also find us on LinkedIn or Twitter at Maniv Mobility. Thanks for listening.